right, should we do this? Let's do it. John chapter 11. Since the school year started in, well, for us, in September, we have been going through a gospel, a book, a biography that you will find in the New Testament written by and named after the man who wrote it, wrote it named John. John was the last of Jesus' apostles. He was the last of the living apostles. Sometime, who knows, near the end of his life, when all of the other apostles had already died, been martyred, or called home to Christ, he was the last remaining one. And what do you say when you are the last of those who witnessed Jesus firsthand, who saw his miracles, who followed him, who heard his teachings with their own ears, whose life was transformed by the literal physical touch of Jesus? What do you say? What do you leave behind? What do you communicate when you know that you are the last of an era? This is the Gospel of John. Near the end of his life, this last living apostle wrote a story. He wrote a story about Jesus. And this story is his testimony of what he discovered and experienced, of who Jesus is, what he said, what he did, how Jesus understood himself, his mission, and what he came to do, and what he has come to show us and reveal to us about God. And more significantly, sharing the discovery that all who call on Jesus' name, all who, as John will put it, put their faith in him and their trust in him, their hope in him as the son of God himself, that there's a transformation of soul and spirit that equates to a new kind of life that never ends in Jesus' name. And since September, we've been on this journey of hearing and seeing and reading what John has to say. And today we come to John chapter 11. In it, we see the seventh sign. And I know that sounds like a B-rated apocalyptic movie. <laughs> but what we see is John recording sign number seven, arguably the greatest of them that he has been talking about and anchoring his story in as he's gone along. Since the beginning of John, he has been showing us or focusing our attention on select miracles or signs that Jesus did. Things like going to a wedding and changing water into wine. That's pretty cool. Things like going up to a man who's panicked and grieving because his child might die. Healing her. Things like walking up to a, a crippled man, a paralyzed man who for 40 years has wasted away without hope on slum row, telling him to get up and walk. Things like Jesus walking himself, but not on ground on water. Things like taking a few loaves of bread and a few fish 
and feeding thousands with it. There's a story through John, or a theme, if you will, where John's trying to fix our attention on certain select signs or miracles. He calls them signs because that's what they are, indicators. Indicators by the power and authority of Jesus and what he's doing, of what he's about, and how to understand what God is about as well. And today in John chapter 11, we come to arguably the coolest, the greatest, and the most spectacular of these, raising a brother from the dead. So let me read to you John 11 today. It's longer, so stay with me. But it's really good. Here it is. John chapter 11. Here we go. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one that you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, no, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, He stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let's go. Let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you are going back there? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. And after he'd said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. But Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant actual natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. So that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let's let's go too, that we may die with him. Now on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had been already in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. To which Jesus said to her, and let me show this to you. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he asks this question. Do you believe this? Take a step forward from the story on the page. Do you believe this? Let Jesus' question come to you today. Do you believe this? Say it with me. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is making his same invitation to believe something crazy and powerful and filled with hope and long shot. To believe something so contrary to the world as we know it today. And listen to what she answers. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher's here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Jesus reached the place where Jesus, or when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, Lazarus' sister, by this time, there's a bad odor. For he's been in there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up, and here's what he said. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, 
But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you have sent me. Now, when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take Jesus' life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert to stay to, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to this feast at all? But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. It's a cool story, isn't it? This, this, is this amazing story filled with so much about how Jesus relates to people, about how God works, about Jesus' authority over death itself, about the nature of what God is looking to do in this world and how people respond to it. But there's one thing in this story that I want to pause on. I want to especially take time to highlight today. And my bet is as I read the story, you just kind of Skipped right by. Let me put it on the screen. It's this line right here. Where in hearing the news, on coming to the tomb, on seeing the people crying and wailing in the face of death, it says that Jesus once more deeply moved came to that grave. It says it was a stone or a cave with a stone laid across it. It's where he said, take away the stone. I want to I drill down into this phrase. And I want to drill down into something in particular. This one, little, this one little line, this one little word packet. 
deeply moved. Jesus is there in the face of suffering and he's deeply moved. He's there in the face of grief and he's deeply moved. He's there in the face of death and Jesus is deeply moved. There's something that brings me immense comfort that God is deeply moved by the things that affect us. That God's heart breaks in ways as ours do. I wanna talk to you about this phrase, deeply moved. Because what does it mean to actually be deeply moved? By nature of the phrase, it's kind of generic, isn't it? And my, my, my suspicion is we've seen people deeply moved in our lives in all kinds of ways. Have you ever been to a sporting event? Have you ever been to a concert? Have you ever been to some kind of big celebration? Have you ever been to a wedding and you were happy that they were getting married? <laughs> Have you ever seen people deeply moved at times like that? What does it look like? Clapping, cheering, celebrating, singing. Have you ever had those moments where you're bursting out of your own skin with, with joy and excitement and just enthusiasm and the spirit of the room or maybe the spirit of God who's moving upon you? Sometimes we see deeply moved look like that. Something tells me that that's not what this is getting at here. Many of you have memorized the shortest verse in the Bible. And if not, you're gonna memorize it today. Ready? Jesus wept. Isn't that great? I remember growing up in like Christian grade school and we had to memorize Bible passages and when they gave you the option to choose your own, do you know what it always was? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus is affected by death too, the loss of his friend, the sympathy and the empathy for broken people suffering so deeply the death of someone they love. Jesus wept. What does it mean to be deeply moved? Is it a way of expressing that? That Jesus wept, and then he says, bring me to the tomb. And he comes to the tomb, and the tears start welling up again. It certainly makes sense, doesn't it? But I'd like to suggest to you another way to think about what it means that Jesus was deeply moved that way. Something that, that people who study John and write about John comment on left and right. See, this phrase deeply moved finds its roots back in the King James Bible. And the King James Bible really sets the course for everything in the English language in terms of Bible translation. And it is a good translation. But they choose words and they choose phrases that kind of embed themselves in translators' psyches that continue on. And there's a certain genericism to the term that I think they kind of continue to go with. As an aside, I, I, I didn't know if I was going to share this, but I just have to. Because the next line after this verse is totally worth sharing, both in English, uh, both in English and from the King James. That was a, a slip. Both in normal English and in King James. All right. It's John 11:38. Let me read the next line in the NIV. All right. Here it is. So, 
But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Do you know how the King James words this? It's so fantastic. And and I'll say the the first line, the same in the NIV. Well, yeah, and and I'll just get to the, the key line. But Lord said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time he stinketh. Isn't that fantastic? I encourage you to use that line. The next time you give someone a breath mint or a piece of gum, and they're kind of resisting, no, by this time your breath stinketh. That 12-year-old boy who lives in your house who refuses to take a shower, get in the tub. By this time you stinketh. There is a lot of traction in this phrase. But here's Jesus at the tomb of a man who's clearly dead. Not kind of dead, not sort of dead, rotten away for four days. Dead. And he's deeply moved. There's something commentators will talk about in this phrase. The way the the language underneath gets translated to deeply moved. And they point to some parallels. They'll point you to classical Greek. Well, I'll talk about how this, this word, this, this, this word that gets translated deeply moved is the same word in classical Greek they would use to describe when a horse would snort, right? Which is kind of interesting in its own right. But let me add a layer, especially in war or in a race. For humans, it seems to follow this kind of trajectory. A word packet used to describe people who are angry, outraged, fury, a contempt that says, I'm not going to take it anymore. And they do something about it. You see it used that way in the other gospels in the Bible. There's a story in Matthew, chapter 9, where Jesus heals two blind men. And everyone is spreading the word about Jesus, and he's kind of getting fed up about it. And he goes and he heals these two blind men, and he does it in private. And then he warns them. It says he gives them a stern warning not to tell anyone about it. It's the exact same word phrase. Jesus was deeply moved and warned them. Don't tell anyone. Don't do it. I always wondered how Christian evangelism would work for the better if we just told people not to do it and you go, oh, you're not going to tell me what to do. <laughs> the one I like even more even ties into the story. But you won't find the details there. You'll find the details in Mark. Did you catch earlier at the beginning of the story in John chapter 11 how the man who died, his name is Lazarus, and he has two sisters, Mary and Martha, and Jesus was close with them all, right? And did you catch that one weird little thing about Mary, how there was this this episode a little bit earlier where she like took some expensive perfume and broke it and poured it on Jesus' feet and then like literally wiped it with her hair, which I'm assuming was still attached to her head, right? It's kind of weird, isn't it? But at the same time, there's something that you go, there's something cool maybe in there. 
When you read the story in Mark or the other Gospels, there's some details that John just doesn't take the time to focus on. And the detail that's pertinent to this phrase is this, that when the disciples witness what Mary does to Jesus by taking this expensive perfume that's worth like nine months wages, I mean, wrap your mind around this, this bottle of nard, this perfume that's worth nine months wages, how much do you make a year? Carve it into nine That's some serious cash. And she breaks the bottle to pour it on Jesus' feet. And the disciples witness this, and you know what they do? They get mad. You know what they say? What a waste. This money could have been used in better ways to help maybe the poor. Oh, and does that light Jesus up and tick him off? But the phrase in question I want to point you to is this. It says that the disciples rebuked her harshly. That's how the NIV will read. The disciples rebuked her harshly. It's the exact same packet. It's the exact same word phrase. What I want to suggest to you is is to read this passage, to read this event in a way different than I think you're inclined to. If you were there with John witnessing it, what would you see? If you were a director making a movie about it, how would you put this into film? Most show a sympathetic, compassionate, broken Jesus weeping. Well, we certainly saw that Jesus wept. And maybe. But the language seems to express something different that Jesus is there at the tomb and he's mad. He's angry. He's fed up and he's not gonna take it anymore. Mad at who? Angry at who? Fed up with who? Mary and Martha and the people grieving? That doesn't make much sense. That doesn't seem to fit the flow of the story. No, mad about something else. Transport yourself back there for a moment. Put yourself at the scene. Unlike a Midwest funeral that lasts maybe a couple hours or only a day, here we have family gathered, friends gathered, the community gathered because one of their own has died. And for days, three days, five days, seven days, the people are gathered. The people are crying. The people are wailing. The people are comforting their loved one. And they're, here they are at the grave. Imagine yourself. Transport yourself there. Put yourself in that place. Imagine Jesus seeing the chaos that's ensuing with people wailing and breaking and crying, standing there in front of this tomb, this symbol of the victory of death, the inevitability of death, the futility of life because of death. And he's angry because death is not going to torture, torment, and terrorize my people anymore. He's fed up. He's moved. And he's going to do something about it. And imagine Jesus standing there in the middle of it all 
with the brokenness and resignation and suffering of the people around him? Shouting out to death in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And death having no choice but to bow before him. Because what John wants you to see, the story that he's telling, is that this Jesus is no ordinary man, that in this Jesus there is the power and authority even over death itself, that God has come. And when God comes on the scene, even death goes free, fleeing because that is who God is. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, Jesus says. And it ain't just words. One commentator, a guy named Gary Burge, great man, read anything you can by him. He's actually come and spoken here at FOF in the past. He writes this. God's people possess knowledge of life. They should possess a faith that claims victory at the grave, but here they stand overcome in seeming defeat. And here stands the one in whom victory, life, and resurrection are powerful realities. Jesus is angry at death itself and the devastation it brings. Jesus is mad when death comes your way. Jesus is mad when death infects your family. God is mad when it seems like he is passively standing by, staying away and letting life follow its course. It moves him deeply. Do not think that God is disinterested in your suffering and grief. No, God has moved and John wants us to see it. And Jesus that day does something about it. This is a window, a window to the hope of the life that Jesus talks about, the life that Jesus brings to everyone who puts their hope, trust, and faith in him. is someone more than just a man. There's something else I'd like to point out in this story as well. There were many who saw this, this sign. And I mean, just imagine witnessing something like that. And it led them to take that step to put their faith in him. But there were many who went the opposite way. And because of it, wanted to kill him. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that strange? And isn't it ironic that if someone actually raises a dead person, you think you can kill him? <laughs> I mean, there's so many levels here. But it reveals something to me. And we've seen it throughout John and how people respond. That sometimes no matter what a person sees, no matter what a person hears, no matter what a person witnesses, no matter what a person experiences, no matter how God works in their life, they just simply refuse to believe and gnash their teeth and decide to go another way or, or choose a cold indifference. Apathy. 
or silent contempt. I know I'm speaking to some of you here today who have struggled with someone that you love, a spouse, a child, a friend, a parent, someone that you pray for, and it doesn't seem to do anything. Someone that you pull for, you witness to, you invite. Someone who has seen the work of God in their life. Someone who has heard it and knows it. Someone who's been brought up in it. And no matter what happens, everything seems to be met with a sense of indifference or apathy or hostility. to the message you bring. And you don't know what to do. Because you stand as powerless before the situation as you do before death itself. I wanna speak to you today and I wanna encourage you in this. Do not stop hoping. Do not stop praying. Because God is the one who can raise the dead the physical and the spiritual too. I want to share a story with you and then we'll share an even cooler one. How many of you remember Sandy Ward? Several of you who are in the room. She was one of our founding members here at Fellowship of Faith. Died in 2012. And I would call Sandy a church widow. Not because she was a widow, but because when it came to her faith life and her church involvement, she effectively was. She'd been married to this man named Tom up to the day she died for over 40 years. He was a Vietnam vet, saw some ugly things. He was cynical and angry. Tom, later in his life, was afflicted by Parkinson's disease. For years, no decade or more, decades, confined to a wheelchair. And it made him more angry, bitter, filled with hate and contempt with nowhere to direct it, so it just consumed his life. And Sandy loved that man. She prayed for that man. She invited and shared. She she wept in her heart over her husband who disbelieved God because he hated the Lord. She would be ridiculed by him. She would get the rolling of the eyes. She would get the write-off. She, it was cold. It was hard. This, this woman took abuse. No, not physical. But that day-to-day emotional erosion that happens with someone who holds you because of your beliefs in contempt, scoffs and laughs and ridicules. But I'll tell you this. For over 40 years, she never stopped praying for her husband. Oh, there were dark nights of the soul. Oh, there were dark seasons too, I'm sure. But God would bring her back again. 
it was shortly before Sandy died, that a bunch of people from this church went over to her house. Not the first time, not the only time. But they went there to help them fix some things and clean some things up. Nancy was a hoarder. Sandy, I said Nancy. Sandy was a hoarder. I don't know why. But something melted a little in Tom that day. Tom actually started coming to church. He'd start smiling when he looked at you. Instead of trying to rush out the door immediately, he would spend some time to talk and greet you. Instead of standing over in a corner in his wheelchair, or sitting, I should say, just kind of stay away from me. I, I, little, little perceptible things without any, you know what I mean? This went on for several months, and we had a baptism service going on. And we invited anyone who wanted to be baptized to come forward. And by this point, something started to swell in Tom's life. And before the words were out of my mouth, he was trying to push himself in his wheelchair down the aisle. He grabbed the mic. He shared to the congregation that, guys, what you did for me meant the world and what you did for my wife meant, meant the world. And I finally come to see Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. Tom was not miraculously healed. He continued to be in that wheelchair. Tom's quality of life did not improve. No, it decreased and he went to a crappy nursing home. And he died in that place. But Tom's quality of life, no, it changed drastically. Never stop hoping for the spiritual dead person in your life. I want to share one more story with you today. Not me, but from the person's own lips. I invite an amazing woman here from Fellowship of Faith to come up. Her name is Michelle. She's going to tell you firsthand about her own experience with this. Would you welcome her with me today? Thank you. Um, so my dad, he's pictured here, that's Dave. Uh, he was a kind man, he was a loving man, but beneath all that, he was also a very stubborn and opinionated man. Um, he was someone that my husband and I kind of tasked ourselves with, like, all right, we're gonna show him Jesus. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna break him down. We're gonna make him see this, because really he did not grow up with any of that. My grandma, like his family, no one was really believers. I never grew up in the church. So this was kind of all new territory for us. So we tasked ourselves with this. Well, it wasn't going well. And in 2018, our family suffered a tremendous amount of loss and was really hurting. Um, and it started in February when we lost my stepmom to a rare form of cancer. That broke my dad. Um, at that point, he really thought that God hated him. He really saw no reason to believe something because he felt like he, felt like he was being punished. He lost the love of his life. Um, 
After she passed, his health started taking a really, a really hard toll. Um, he had already suffered a massive heart attack in like 2012-ish and had already um, had and beaten cancer himself. Um, but in the months after my stepmom died, it got worse. Um, we noticed he was getting really sick and we started taking him to doctor's appointments and stuff. And I remember really distinctively, it was Thanksgiving. Um, he was supposed to come to my house and... Uh, celebrate with us, but he just was not well enough to do that. And instead, my husband and my kids, we all went to see him that Sunday after. And he was pretty much bedridden at this point, and we're all playing around, hanging out the house, and my husband, Ben, jokingly goes, all right, I'm going to start putting up your Christmas decorations. And my dad, with the most anger and hatred he could have in his voice, which was pretty raspy at this point because of his cancer, um, he said, deadpanned my husband and said, you put up one effing Christmas decoration and I'm going to lose my mind because why the hell should I celebrate someone that doesn't give a damn about me? Like it was hard. And I remember Ben looking right at me. I could see the sadness in his eyes. We thought we'd lost him. We lost our, we lost our opportunity. There was no way we we're going to be able to save this man. There was no way we were going to be able to tell him that, Hey, Jesus actually really loves you. Um, so we went about our day, and you fast forward a couple weeks later, and my dad lands in the hospital. Um, he had had emergency surgery to remove a lot of fluid around his heart. Um, he was in the ICU for a couple of days, and as he started to come out of it, um, coming out of sedation, you, you get kind of wacky. And he was saying some goofy things, and he was starting to get really agitated. And for me, I needed, I needed to step back. I needed to take a break because it was just very overwhelming for me. So I left the room. We had a lot of family with us, too. Um, at some point, they also kind of stepped back, leaving just my dad and my husband, Ben, in the room together. So I walked away for about 10 minutes or so. I come back, and I see my husband, like, scurrying from my dad's room, and he busts out of the ICU. And I'm like, oh, oh, gosh, this can't be good. <laughs> like, there's, why else are you running from a room like that? So I, I follow after him, and I see him just collapse in a chair and put his hands, his head in his hands, and I knelt down by him, I look at him, and I say, what's going on? And with tears in his eyes, just completely sobbing, he goes, I just prayed with your dad. I was like, what? So we get to talking, and it turns out, like, my dad's saying kind of wacky stuff. He's like, do you think someone would, like, you know, do a full body transplant with me so that I could, like, live longer? And, you know, kind of talking through all these crazy things about how he could still be here. Because he looked at Ben and said, how do you choose living forever or your family? And my husband, who will tell you, he does not know how the words came out, but the words poured out of him. Um, he looked right at my dad and said, I don't believe I have to make that choice because of God. Um, I believe that, you know, the pain and the anger and the sadness that you're feeling was never part of God's plan. Um, but the gift he gives us of, of love and, and everything that comes with that is why I believe I will see you in heaven, why I will see Anne and why you can see us in heaven. And my dad agreed with it and they prayed. And it wasn't long after that, um, he told Ben that he wanted to talk more about it later. And unfortunately a nurse had come into the room and like that's when my husband had kind of scurried off. And we never got to finish that conversation. Um, my dad went uh, to a hospice care room uh, not long after that moment. 
And we were all there. It was me and my husband, my sister, Susie, and my two stepsisters, Megan and Maureen. Uh, my dad's sister and my aunt had also happened to be there. Uh, we were just talking and giggling and laughing and smiling. And, um, you know, I got to tell him one more time about how God loves him. And he's like, I know, I know. And it was kind of like, you know, a typical dad response, which was really wonderful for me. And it was starting to near the end of the night. And like by end of the night, I mean like eight o'clock, he was, <laughs> he was like, all right, you guys can go now. And we're like, well, no, we want to hang out. And he's like, no, no, you need to go. Um, so we all kind of ushered out. Uh, I was the last one to say goodbye. Um, I gave him a kiss and I got to hear I love you. And then the next morning at about 7.30, I received a call from the hospital that he had passed. Um, we don't know exactly when, um, but oh my gosh, like never give up. Just witness to people. Honestly, just being with him him knowing like our involvement, you know, we didn't really throw the Bible at him. We weren't throwing Jesus at him. We were just being with him. You know, we were telling him about all the things that we do with our church, our church family and things like that. And it obviously started something in him that we never knew did. It, it totally was amazing. And I cannot say it enough. Like, don't lose hope. It's, it's, it's real and it's there. And Ironically enough, we actually lost my grandma that same day, my dad's mom. So it was kind of a, a double whammy for us. But man, my dad's in heaven. And there's nothing greater than the peace of that after receiving just like a devastating phone call. Your job right now may be to endure the eye rolls, the scoffing, the resistance. Never lose hope and let God do his work. This past week, I had two funerals, maybe one and a half, but stood by two separate gravesides, and we did something, and I'd like to do it with you. It's better on your feet. If you don't mind, please, please stand. There, there's something we say here occasionally at FOF. There's a lot of good in it, a lot of history in it, and, and something that's shared by a lot of other churches called the Apostles' Creed. You ever hear of this? If not, it's okay. But it's an ancient statement of faith. It goes back, arguably, to the second century AD. It's something that Christians would say, particularly when they were baptized with the understanding that on their baptism they were transferring from death to life and that God was beginning the process of the new life in him. It struck me as we were standing there at the cemetery in Cary and another in Lake Geneva next to a coffin 
and a hole in the ground. That it's something more than that. Oh, it's a statement of faith. But a statement of faith is not just a recitation of what I believe so I make sure I understand it correctly. A statement of faith is not just like, oh, okay, here, here's the right things I gotta kind of keep repeating so I stay spot on. No. No, it's something that comes from a spirit of being deeply moved. Deeply moved like Jesus was next to that tomb. Deeply moved in the face of death. Broken and weeping, but angry. But an anger that snorts like a horse. An anger that says in defiance to death, you may have me now. But because this person is in Christ, you do not have them forever. Think about that as you say it today. Think about what these words are saying and think about it through the lens. Like Jesus would have said at that tomb when he cried, Lazarus, come out. Think about it as a statement of standing in Jesus' name in the face of death itself, going, you have no power on me. Think about it that way and I think you'll start to discover just a little bit more of what these ancient things are supposed to be. For those of you who have suffered, for those of you who are grieving, for those of you who fear death, I invite you to proclaim this with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. But the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life of the age to come. Amen.